Welcome back to Stream Again, the TV and streaming podcast that will never cross the picket line to betray you, our listeners. I'm, of course, your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined across the East River by Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? I'm with you right there in solidarity, Chris. Always with us in solidarity, always with you, our listeners, in solidarity. I I am, you know, alarmed to find out that our writers are on strike. Mostly alarmed because I didn't know we had writers, Diane. No, the writers are us. We're we're writers. And to be clear, we're not crossing the picket line because we didn't write this episode. Why start now? (laughs) No. But of course, we're, we're talking about serious news. We're talking about the Writers Guild of America, which is on strike. And that is going to be uh, our big story, really, this episode. But we do like to watch TV as well. And so later in this episode, we are watching the second most expensive series on Amazon. The, 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 the streamer that just loves to spend money, Amazon. We've talked about their most expensive series in the past. And they went, what if we did that, but just a little less money, but not necessarily good? That's my review of Citadel coming later this episode. I think I liked it a little more than Chris. And often we're in the opposite spots. So this is kind of fun, you know? Buckle up. We're going to have a blast. And at the very end, we're going to compare Citadel, of which we've only seen two episodes, to be fair. We're going to compare Citadel to the full season of The Night Agent. Yes, The Night Agent, the delicious show we discussed in our last episode, along with Beef. Which, of course, we refer to as... Working on my night... Beef. Night beef. We're, we're done with beef for now, but lots of night. Beefy, beefy night to talk about later in this episode. Uh, but first, like I said, we have to get straight to the news because the news is big. And that big news, of course, is the Writers Guild of America, East and West, on strike. Writers... Strike. That's our sound effect for writers on strike. Uh, Diane, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna open this up to you to start because last week we did a bit of a history lesson, uh, wh- why the writers might be going on strike right now, uh, a little bit about the last strike, which was 15 years ago. Uh, but this strike is really happening and really looks like it's going to be here for quite a while. It sure does. And uh, I was just checking in with Chris before we started this asking, do we need to pretend to be impartial? And we agreed that we do not. Uh, I uh, Full solidarity to our striking writers. Uh, I wish you the best in your contract negotiations with uh, the Association of Motion Picture and Television Producers. I hope that they can come up with something sort of soon because... Partially as a viewer, selfishly, I want to enjoy great content, but I also think just across the industry, anytime that there is work being stopped, uh, people's livelihoods will be affected, even if it is ultimately for good. Yeah, and a point that many of the striking writers have brought up, uh, in particular, I'm thinking of some of the uh, cast members and writers from Saturday Night Live. Uh, That show, amongst many other late night shows, has immediately stopped production and gone into reruns. And, you know, many people have pointed out the the writers and the performers are really in solidarity together, uh, but they also are keenly aware of the fact that their strike means that the crew at SNL is not working. And and obviously, I imagine a lot of the crew feels solidarity with the rest of the creative team. I don't know that though. And to be to be transparent, there are people who have 
you know, not no skin in the game, but this contract negotiation will not directly affect them. And they're being directly affected by the decision to strike. And and I think it's worth saying, if you don't, you know, follow the industry, that a strike is not a decision the guild takes lightly. And it's not something that they do every time the contract renegotiates. There's all this attention on the last strike 15 years ago, and, and I feel like in some ways people go, that's not that long ago. And if you remember it, 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 this feels a little like deja vu, but it's not because the writers are just picky and flippant and decide, well, if we can't have it our way, we're on strike. No, they don't want this. And they feel bad. They work with the people who are being affected directly by this. Right. I think one of the issues I was a little confused about is as someone who's in solidarity with the writers, do I need to stop watching television? Like, if I turn on Netflix right now, am I a scab? (laughs) I was a little concerned, to be honest. And I've seen some other people express that online. At this time, the Guild is not asking folks to stop streaming, to stop watching their shows. Um, You know, they are asking people to not not take writing jobs, which, you know, I haven't been offered one, but if I were, of course I would decline in solidarity. But, uh, <laughs> so don't even think about offering Ted. Absolutely <laughs> not. Zaz, you don't have my number. <laughs> For as long as this strike lasts, forget my number and then remember it. Absolutely. But, um, <laughs> once we have these, these great new deals, I mean, I, yeah, so so don't feel guilty. Don't feel guilty if you're someone who is still streaming. We are still streaming for the time being. And if those requests from the Writers Guild change as to how to act in solidarity, we'll update you. Yeah, of course we will. Uh, I hope it doesn't come to that. And in the meantime, the, you know, these people, they created this work. They want people to see it. The issue here is they want to be paid uh, appropriately for it. They want the, the the work to be given the value that it returns to the streamers. And admittedly, this is also about traditional networks and cable. But, but to be honest, this round of negotiations is really about streaming and how streaming has upended uh, the entire economic model of being a TV writer. And again, we we talked about this uh, in the last episode. So if you want a refresher, it's in your feed and it's full of Working on my night. Beef. Just as a teaser, plenty of beef for you. But uh, one detail that's really different this time than last time is that in addition to the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild and then SAG-AFTRA, the actors, they all have their contracts coming up for renegotiation soon. And in particular, the directors are up next. And unlike past uh, times, these line up in a way that is perhaps a little more threatening to the industry at large because the directors have a lot of the same grievances this time that the writers do. They're not full overlap. There are many things that the writers care about that the directors absolutely doesn't touch their lives, uh, except in the fact that they work with the writers. But the residuals and international um, essentially equations for paying the writers and directors for streaming, and as we've talked about many times here, international is where the growth is. So getting paid more 
or at least uh, to, to put it in the guild terms, more equitably for international rights and residuals is a huge issue going forward because that is where your show will be gaining new audience. You are not likely to gain more new audience in the U.S. on Netflix, for example, because Netflix is really saturated in the U.S. And your odds of becoming the next The Night Agent or Beef or Squid Game that pops to the top of the charts is sort of roulette. Where you're really going to see steady career growth is in, you know, the global distribution pipeline, and everyone is focused on that. Netflix has been doing it for years already, but all of the streamers are focused on international, and that makes it a really important negotiation issue and one that touches both the directors and the writers equally. And that is an, uh, an interesting, though ominous, position to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I think that looking forward to one thing that I've been seeing a bunch of is news about the writers in television with this strike. Um, But we should say it also does affect uh, movie writers. And um, so the, the amount of disruption that we could see could be not just streaming, not just network, but also theatrical ultimately. Um, So we'll see how long this goes on. Um, folks uh, like Netflix have been very confident in expressing that uh, they have a lot of content in the can already ready to release. Um, but, you know, how much of that is bluster is really hard to tell. At this point, one thing I know I'll be doing as I keep getting news stories in about this is seeing, okay, who are the sources that are being named in this or who do they say are their sources? Because, you know, both the WGA and the AMPTP are going to be putting news out there. I think probably especially the AMPTP through the media um, trying to support their goals. So I I think it's a moment where if you're someone who consumes a lot of news about the industry, it's good to read every article with that little grain of salt. That's a great point. And I I found my first real, what felt to me like, uh, not propaganda, but the the producer's side of the story is being told uh, in an article today. Uh, We'll include a link in the show notes. But the the gist I want to get at here is the... Uh, the the producers are saying, well, what are we supposed to do? The Guild says they don't want us to email the writers. The writers sent us all these scripts recently. Shouldn't we email them? No, I guess not. What do we do? Which is a really disingenuous response to the leak to the media, was my reaction. Because you know what to do. Push to find a solution to the negotiations on the contract. Because that we we all saw this coming. For many months now, the writers are not surprised that they are on strike, nor should you be. And so any reaction that has a tone of, we're just so surprised. And we're surprised that right before they went on strike, they all emailed us a bunch of drafts for things. And I'm like, that's not surprising. That's a tactic. That's a completely expected tactic. And if it's not even a deliberate negotiating tactic from guild members, if you're a guild member and you know you're about to go into a prolonged strike... Of course you're going to send your most recent completed scripts out because you can't after the strike starts. And if you want to get your foot in any door, it's it's just smart to be like, oh, by the way, here's that script that you wanted me to deliver next month. I have it done early. Sorry, you can't email me back about it until the strike is over, though. 
But of course, you're going to do that because if you can't deliver the script during the strike, they might say you're in violation of your contract. And then they might not pay you what they were supposed to pay you. Or they might use an escape clause to, uh, you know, buy you out of the contract. And of course, all of this is about getting paid. So that would would not be ideal to the writers. So of course, they're going to send you their scripts. And then the reaction from the, the producers again is, well, we're so confused. What's happening? Yeah, I'm going to call balderdash on anyone saying that uh, they're just dying to give writers notes on their scripts. Yeah, oh, um, uh, truly, some of the quotes in this are like, well, I, you know, I just I'm sending them the notes, but I'm saying don't look at these notes until the strike is over. I was just so eager to get them to you now. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah, the first time anyone's ever heard that in the writing community. Ever. No, we don't believe you. Yeah. So I, I think a great thing to say is follow the news right now, but be very uh, skeptical of the sources on both sides. Because, again, they both have agendas. This is a contract negotiation. They both want things. And make sure you're reading with that that lens. Uh, I do want to talk about some of the shows that are immediately impacted, just to do a kind of quick survey of the landscape. Like, how will this affect the things we watch, Right. Uh, and I, I don't have a lot here, but I just thought it was an interesting cross-section. Uh, number one, Yellow Jackets, extremely popular Showtime series, airing its second season right now. They apparently had one day of their season three writer's room. And it was a great day, they said on Twitter. And now that day has ended and they're on strike. So like, it's hugely disruptive. They, they don't even have a single script done if they've only had one day of their season three writer's room. I hope Showtime still exists <laughs> when they by the back. time they're back in the room. Oh, that's dark. Uh, but you know, speaking of dark, here's a show that's just literally dark when you look at it. House of the Dragon from the Game of Thrones franchise. Different situation. Their season two scripts are already done. And so a question was, will they halt production? And they've said, no, we are not going to halt production. We're going to barrel through with the scripts we have. And I'm sure they're closely watching the DGA, the Directors Guild, because if the directors go on strike or, of course, if the actors go on strike, then you have to stop production because you can shoot the things that are already written right now. But you can't, you know, shoot actors who are on strike or have a director who is on strike. So when I say things are getting ominous, there there is a bigger potential stoppage on the horizon. It would be unprecedented. So it's not like, oh, sure, that's going to happen. But but I can see why if you're like HBO, you're looking at your schedule for House of the Dragon and you're saying you can't even stop for a day right now. You need to just keep shooting. Yeah, uh on all cylinders at this point. But I do think it's interesting to think about that for just as like one way that the industry works. A lot of writers do also have producing credits and work as producers, and that's part of their normal paycheck. In recent years, some of that work has gone away. And so you may see uh, in shows over the last five years, fewer writers working on set. Um, and so that's how you could have a situation where like on House of the Dragon, um, they're able to continue filming the show, even though their their writers are striking, uh, which, you know, 10 years ago, you would have had writers on set every day. Yeah. And, and there are still shows where they are, but you're right. It's no yeah. longer an industry expectation in some ways. It really varies by uh, project and by genre. Uh, another example I have for you, Night Court, 
our beloved NBC reboot of Night Court. Now, there's a, a hyper-traditional multicam sitcom, which is the kind of show that always has writers on set because they are constantly tweaking jokes, punching up jokes, trying alternate jokes and different line readings. I mean, the the... the actual creation of a sitcom in uh, the traditional sense really is like an alchemy that happens while they're rehearsing and filming the episode based on a script that could change dramatically in the details but gives them the, the bones of the the story like it, it's a it's a very different model of making a, a television show than house of the dragon or you know another fill in your prestige drama here succession for example uh, i i we know that they have a lot of uh, rapport and back and forth with the actors and the writers on the set because we see that in the behind the scenes vignettes with jesse armstrong and, and company but that is not the kind of show that would typically have a, a writer necessarily rewriting things mid-shoot because those shoots are incredibly detailed and expensive and the timing of getting everything done is extremely important. Whereas, again, Night Court is shot on a soundstage with a couple of sets, and obviously people have to, you know, go home at the end of the day, and there's work hours and regulations, but you don't have the worry of, we only have the boat today, or we only have the boat for the wedding episode this week, so we have to get it all done before we don't have the boat anymore. So, uh, back to Night Court. They're, they're not working right now. They, they, they were already off for a week, but they're not coming back. Uh, and I imagine that was some smart schedule planning there to say, why don't we just take the week of the deadline off and then see what happens? But now that they've seen what's happening, they're like, yeah, no, we can't shoot a sitcom like this. Even if the episode is already quote unquote written, we need the writers on set. Right. And similarly for like any of the late night shows, if you're someone who tunes into one of the many Jimmy's every night, you know, uh, there won't be a new episode. You'll catch a rerun uh, for the time being uh, because the writers aren't there and they make jokes every day about the day's news. So uh, th th it won't be on. Yeah, and a lot of those writers here in New York are the ones who are on the picket lines right now. You know, mm -hmm. I saw photos of Bowen Yang down at Netflix today. I've read quotes from the Daily Show writers uh, on the picket line. They they were writing these episodes. They were writing the jokes. And now they can't use them, which is, in fact, yeah. very frustrating to them as writers because they are topical and timely and they won't work uh, three months from now. Right. Or, you know, maybe it'll be less than that. Maybe It'll be six months. Maybe it'll be. <laughs> oh, gosh, who knows? There's a lot of possibilities right now, which is not great. Not a great feeling as a fan of, of the television. But that that is why we're here to celebrate the great work that these creative people make and that we love to be a part of as audiences, as artists. So we are, again, standing in solidarity with the writers and uh, quite possibly soon even more members of the community. But to say right now, if you don't quite feel like you know what the stakes are here, it is simple. It's the, the economic model of making a living in television. And that trickles down to directors and actors and everyone else. And it's the writers who happen to be at the forefront of this right now because their contract is up. And they often, I think, are at the bleeding edge of changes in the industry because changes in the industry affect what shows get bought, how they get uh, produced and written. And the writer is always involved in all of those steps, whereas the actor isn't necessarily involved in how the show got bought. 
and what the contract is on the residuals for the creatives. That there could be residuals for the actors, of course, and that's why I say it trickles down and touches everybody. Uh, but it, it, it should not be surprising that it's the writers who are uh, really making noise about it first and loudly. No, it shouldn't. And you might wonder, hearing all of this, oh, is it just that TV is not profitable anymore, right? Like, do they want money that just isn't there? And while we've talked a lot about how changes in the industry have affected, you know, corporate profits for these big companies, at this, they are still making money. Yes, uh, they Netflix are. is still making money. Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is making money. Uh, NBC Universal is making money. So while they throw up their hands and they might be, you know, releasing statements to the press like we offered them money. They don't want this great money we offered them. Again, the grain of salt is needed every time you're reading these stories. Speaking of money, just for a moment, I'm just going to tease that a bit later in this episode, we're going to discuss a TV show that Amazon has spent $300 million on, and there are six episodes of it. $300 million to produce six episodes of television. Boy, howdy. Oh, boy. And, and um, yeah, I'm just going to venture a guess that the writers did not take up the lion's share of that $300 million. I'm just going to guess they didn't pay the writing staff $200 million. I think that's a fair assumption, Chris. We'll never know. You know, call us uh, Amazon, the guy who replaced Jeff. I almost said call us Jeff, but I know it's not Jeff anymore. Although Jeff is the reason they did the Lord of the Rings thing. Anyway, that's a story for a bit later, because I do want to touch on some more uh, tangentially related, let's say knock on stories related to the writer's strike. We mentioned, of course, that a big, big factor here in the immediate impact is late night television. So let's talk briefly about what's going on at The Daily Show in particular as they've been continuing their search for a new host. And uh, the moment that they're in right now with the strike hitting is particularly interesting to me because they just started moving through the guest hosts being the correspondents. So we've had Desi Lydic, uh, Jordan Klepper, Roy Wood Jr. This week was supposed to be Dulce Sloan's week. Uh, and that is now, you know, on the rocks, so to speak. And it, it does pose the question, you know, the shows, the late night shows, they can they can put up episodes. They just can't have any writers writing them. And during the previous strike, there were some experiments with that. Conan O'Brien, like, spinning a coin on his desk and drinking water on air to prove that he has no writers. But that, that kind of, like, Hail Mary, let's just throw a show up to fill the airtime, that requires a host who is not literally one of the writing staff and can therefore actually be up there. And and right now, I have to say, I don't get the vibe that any of the late night hosts would want to be up there and do that anyway. But th that's a possibility. And I don't know how The Daily Show does it when they're in guest host mode. I, I just feel like they are just permanently sidelined because I don't know how they even begin to do a show without a writer staff right now, without guild members. Agreed. Yeah, I'm not sure where they would begin. I think that also any of those folks who are those guest hosts are involved in the creative aspects of it. And I would imagine would wa not want to cross a picket line by writing jokes for it. Yeah, so. yeah. And and many of those guest hosts could be DGA members. It, it, that gets super complicated, super fast. Um, and so I, 
Unfortunate. Or SAG. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Like, again, the knock-on strikes and stoppages are looming on the horizon. Uh, you, just to, to close the loop on that, uh, the DGA contract negotiations literally start next week. And the DGA contract is up at the end of June. And if you are following the, the people who really seem to be in the know uh, in Hollywood, no one thinks that this strike will be over by the end of June. That is an optimistic date if you're talking to people. And if you're not following it this closely, uh, let me be the bearer of bad news. It's not looking good for this to end anytime this spring, maybe not even anytime this summer. I was listening to uh, some folks in the industry, Matt Baloney and um, uh, Lucas Shaw, and th- they were literally debating September or October, and would the Emmys be canceled? Mm. We'll see. That's a long time for folks to be out of work, even though I totally support their cause. And that's not meant to say no. like that I don't at all. I, I do. It's just I feel for everyone in the position of having to strike. I feel for other folks in the industry who may have to pause their work while these strikes potentially happen. It's just it's a really hard moment. Yeah, really, really is. If you would like to smile and laugh a little bit in in perhaps a moment of relief after this very difficult discussion, well, we're going to point you to uh, Roy Wood Jr.'s White House Correspondents' Dinner monologue. Because if you can't watch late-night TV right now, because there is no new late-night TV, I can give you the next best thing. Probably the last most recent and most topical monologue you will get from a late-night comedian right now, because he he delivered this monologue over the last weekend, which was right before the strike started. So truly, I have for you this golden nugget, 29-ish minutes of an excellent topical late-night monologue that just happens to be occurring next to Joe Biden uh, at a banquet. For charity, but if you're not if you're not really familiar with the White House Correspondents' Dinner uh, pre the Trump era, don't let the president and politics and banquets scare you away. It is a funny, topical, very at home on the Daily Show, but a bit more in depth and a little more personal for Roy, uh, Roy Wood, which I loved. A uh, monologue uh, because it is also a charity event, so it gets a little sappy at the end, but in a really lovely way. And I, Diane, I know you saw it too. I I was so happy, grinning throughout. Agreed. I and I appreciated the moments of sap. I mean, right now, uh, the White House Correspondents Dinner, they're raising money for, you know, the cause of journalists and, and training folks to be journalists. As much as we talk about how the, you know, Hollywood industry is in chaos. I think a lot could be said that there's a similar thing happening in the world of journalism right now. A lot of layoffs, a lot of uncertainty. And so to see um, that group being defended in this way and the interest of democracy, but with like so many great, like big old belly laughs, it was just a blast. I, I thought it was really a good mix of um, clever and cutting. 
Oh, well-chosen words. Well-chosen. Uh, and of course, like I said, the link to the full C-SPAN video, not to scare you away again, but C-SPAN video. Don't worry, it's on YouTube. You don't need to learn how C-SPAN works. Uh, it's in the show notes. And uh, again, I, I really encourage you to check it out, uh, especially because this is the comedy that we will have to ration and live off of for the next many months. Honestly, Biden wasn't bad either. No, actually, he, he wasn't. For, for an 80-year-old man delivering politically correct jokes, I gotta say, he killed it. Yeah, for Joe Biden? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that is a moment of levity in what is otherwise a very difficult or confusing time. Uh, so let us, let us just, you know, remember that this is a show where we run through all the strange, interesting streaming news and just take a hard pivot to talk about... You know, one of our favorite topics as of late, the Super Mario Brothers movie, and when can I watch it at home? This is my new favorite story that will just apparently never end, because the Super Mario Brothers movie has crossed $1 billion globally. It is a bonkers hit. And this is where it gets interesting, because we had mentioned in the past that the Super Mario Brothers movie will first go to premium digital video purchase and rental like Amazon, then begin its exciting journey from Peacock to Netflix back to Peacock due to a complicated series of kind of, uh, let's say, demonic contract negotiations between Illumination, Universal, Netflix. I assume somewhere in there is Amazon just because they own it all. Uh, and, and this Amazon part is how we know that everything's delayed all of a sudden. Because previously, you could go to Amazon and you could place your pre-order for the premium digital streaming, on-demand, rental, purchase, whatever the heck you want to call it, of the Super Mario Brothers movie, where it would hit digitally first before streaming. They've pushed it back. And they've pushed it back to an unknown release date because of windowing. And we've talked about windowing before, but I just thought this was so exciting, truly just so exciting, because uh, the windows have been shrinking, especially through the pandemic. The windowing has shrunk a lot so that, uh, you know, movies that used to be exclusively in theaters for months are now maybe only exclusively in theaters for 45 days before they hit streaming. But, but windowing shrinks your window of opportunity to make money on the box office. And the Mario movie is getting so much repeat viewing, a real bonus when you have kids as your target demo, uh, that they've even uh, announced limited releases of the Japanese-voiced version of the movie in the U.S. to encourage diehard Mario fans to go see it again. And if you're doing anything like that, yeah, you're going to push the theatrical window out further so that hopefully you can then rake in even more box office money on top of the people who are going to pay for it on uh, premium streaming. But that means that pushes back the Peacock Netflix Peacock sandwich. So uh, all of this is to say if a movie is a hit, the uh, studios still have the ability to say, oh, he's streaming? No. <laughs> later, later, later. Which... Why can't adult films, and by adult films, I mean films for adults, not adult films. Adult films. Why can't films for grownups have this kind of numbers? It's, Wild. you know, and I know this is an all audiences affair, but uh, it's just crazy that, you know, you see other like 
films like uh, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret is getting 99s on Rotten Tomatoes. It's had, it opened to like 6 million. Like it, it's totally struggling. Um, and movies like the Mario Brothers movie, which like didn't get the best reviews, but it just doesn't really matter. It's just making crazy IP money. Crazy IP money. That's what everybody wants. Oh, it's a sad state of affairs, but I'm glad that theatrical is doing okay. Oh, it's yeah. A good thing for the industry. Same. We need we need some good news for the industry right now. We really do. Uh, and, you know, we, we don't have a lot more good news to share with you this week, but we do have one more uh, big, juicy, and strange story to cover before we get to the spy thriller that is Citadel. But I, I'm going to tell you, this strange and juicy story, here's a teaser for the thing we are literally are going to talk about in 30 seconds. It involves Vladimir Putin for some reason. So just get ready. What in the, the earth are we going to talk about when we return from this sound effect on a button that I am about to push? Yeah, we have a crazy international spy thriller to talk about before we even talk about the crazy international spy thriller that we're going to talk about. Uh, because one of the big stories that happened right before the writer's strike is the firing of NBC Universal chief Jeff Shell. That is the man in charge of NBC, as well as Peacock, of course, because you can't say NBC without going, oh yeah, they, they do Peacock. Uh, Jeff Shell fired dramatically by his bosses at Comcast uh, for an affair with a CNBC uh, anchor, which begins to get weird as they go into the details of their relationship and this anchor's career because uh, apparently their relationship fell apart seemingly right around the time that this CNBC anchor interviewed Vladimir Putin in Putin's last interview with Western media before the war in Ukraine. And the interview is mostly known for the fact that she appeared to be flirting with him as a tactic during the interview. And I, 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 I feel strange saying that detail in some ways because it feels oddly shamey or accusatory, but it is... Uh, I vaguely remember when this interview aired. I didn't know this anchor, uh, but I, I remember that there was this story about a kind of uh, an interview with Putin that just struck people as unusual. But any interview with Vladimir Putin is unusual. So I, I, all of this story, I'm like, where do you begin? Where do you begin? I think that it's important to note that he wasn't just fired for the affair. He was fired for allegations of sexual discrimination and harassment by this CNBC anchor, um, which, you know, also includes allegations of a consensual affair. And his response, Jeff Shell's response has been that their relationship was entirely consensual. So um, we don't know any of the details of her claim against him and what might have happened that might have escalated something to the level of harassment or discrimination. So... Again, it's one of those things where, like, seeing who's speaking to media, I'm going to do a, a great big grain of salt uh, anytime there is someone who's been ousted on alleged misconduct. Absolutely. Uh, you know, you, you have to be a little skeptical. 
Yeah, and and the details in this story have kind of been dripping out over the last two weeks, and and they again they get odd pretty quickly. Uh, I, I'm not using the name of the anchor because she didn't initially want her name public. Although we've discussed a major interview that was like a career making interview for her because that's in the public domain now, and her name has been released by her lawyers. But you can look that up if you want. There's a link to Variety's cover story about this in our show notes that goes into all the details. Uh, uh, what I want to focus on here, besides the fact that the story is bonkers in a lot of ways, is uh, two details. One of which we just touched on uh, before the mic started rolling, Diane, which is, uh, in one way, this story is uh, kind of uh, out there, let's say. let's To, to put a, a real Midwestern euphemism on it, that story is out there. However, if you've been following the internal politics of NBC Universal, a network that gifted us Matt Lauer and his creepy door that closes with a button, no, this isn't that out there. This seems really usual at NBC, an incredibly horny and uh, lecherous organization. Yeah, the the predation doesn't seem to stop. It uh, seems like a pattern, which is uh, very disturbing. Oh, you know, it's... Jeff Shell specifically was involved, we know, uh, with the firing of Matt Lauer and ousted executive Ron Meyer, uh, who also had to lose his role, though not for cause, but who also lost his role due to a sex scandal. Yeah. Yeah, and when he fired those people for their sex scandals, he was in the middle of a consensual affair with an employee. Alleged consensual. Yes. Thank you for that correction. That is correct. The devil is absolutely in the details here in, in so many ways. Uh, and and uh, yo, I just want to call out, one, it seems like a cultural issue. And two, uh, the hypocrisy that he is uh, confronted with here is, I think, part of the story and part of why Comcast felt that they could so aggressively just say, no, you're fired. With cause, no severance, because they can, Comcast can control the narrative here and say, this was a a repeat offender, a hypocrite, somebody who, you know, if you think that the corporate culture at NBC has a problem, well, he was the head of it and he was part of the problem. Right. Uh, It is an ugly story as much as it is a fascinating one. There are also some other concerns that when you look at what might be the future of Comcast and NBC Universal, there are some possibilities, which, you know, we don't know that this will happen, but it could happen that Warner Brothers Discovery might buy Comcast or NBC or might buy NBC Universal from Comcast. Uh, And if that's the case, there would be a question as Variety reports here as to whether Jeff Shell would take over or David Zaslav. And uh, if there's one fewer man for the job, you know, that that does clear a path of ascendancy for Zaz. Do I think that's what happened here? No, I think that uh, this anchor's uh, contract was up for renegotiation. And so this story came up now. But could that could there be more to this story? There absolutely could be. 
Yeah, and and you hit the second part I was going to get to of why I think this story is particularly interesting for us in this show. And that's there's a power vacuum at the top of NBC Universal right now. And depending on, you know, the the sources uh, you read and the grains of salt you take as you read them, it seems like Comcast does not love owning NBC Universal, which is again Ironic, because they bought it not that long ago uh, from GE. But, you know, sure, everybody buys a a giant media operation at some point just to go, whoops, we're a phone company, or whoops, we're a cable company. And then they try to offload it to David Zaslav specifically, apparently, in in these rumors. Uh, but, But there is a real question that has already been posed before this scandal hit of, does Comcast even want to be in this business? And if they don't, what are their options for getting rid of NBC Universal? And the the one that has been bandied about for quite a while now is to sell it off to Warner Brothers Discovery, which cannot happen immediately because the Wabro Disco merger has some details where they they aren't allowed to do another merger immediately. But that has been sitting as a thought and. Just as Diane said, the big question was, well, who would run that? Because Jeff Shell and Zaz are both giants in the industry. So now the question is, who do they replace Jeff Shell with? Do they pick another titan, let's say, of TV? Or do they pick a seat warmer? Uh, somebody to just kind of keep the ship running on autopilot until Comcast figures out who's willing to buy it. We'll see. We will. It'll take a while, but we will see. And certainly when we find out who's going to step in uh, permanently into Jeff Shell's role, we will let you know here on Streamageddon. Uh, but in the meantime, enough about uh, the real world drama involving political machinations and spies in foreign countries. Let's talk about a much more refreshing kind of international foreign intrigue. Or if you're me, a much more boring kind of international foreign intrigue, because we're getting to this week's main review of Citadel. Yes, Citadel is a new series on Amazon Prime Video from the Russo Brothers. The Russo Brothers, of course, brought you Avengers Endgame, da 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 da. Uh, Arrested Development, too. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. They- Several episodes of Arrested <laughs> Development. Right. Oh, right, right. There's reasons I'd heard of them before. The reason everyone else has heard of them. Uh, this is a, as we mentioned earlier, a three hundred million dollar season of television that has already been renewed because you know Amazon and their giant boondoggles of hundreds of millions of dollars. They're going to renew those no matter what because it's not good to spend that much money and then cancel it after six episodes uh, but this is not just renewed for season two this is a play on amazon's part to create their own franchise ip baby it's all about the franchise ip money it sounds like a great premise for a franchise it's fun it's like this sexy spy thriller it's got a little bit of jason Bourne in there a little bit of james bond I thought it sounded like an interesting or at least cohesive idea for a franchise before I watched the two episodes. And after just two, but only two of six, it's not like, oh, two, but there are 20, so we could really go places. Like, there's six episodes. We've already seen a third of the season. By the way, 
spoiler alerts for those two episodes, I, I hope you can realize. Uh, but but I didn't see how the show I was watching was going to fulfill that promise of a exciting, globe-trotting spy franchise. And part of that is, I think, the premise of the show so far, which, let's lay it out for you, it's a spy show, primarily surrounding two spies and a Stanley Tucci character. Uh, and those two spies, hmm, I mean, the Stanley Tucci character is the, like, carrot I'm dangling to keep you listening. Uh, the two spies, uh, they were, like, partners, but maybe there's, like, a sp- spark between them, a will they, won't they, but that's in the past, because eight years ago in the past, their spy agency, Citadel, was taken down by the rival spy agency, Manticore, and all the Citadels died, except for these two, who didn't die, because they have chips in their brain that the Stanley Tucci character used to erase their memories in order to protect them or protect the secrets of the Citadel. They haven't fully explained the why of that yet, except that they lost their memories, and they're the only ones who lived. And now eight years later, the Stanley Tucci character is tracking them down to stop Manticore from doing some even more evil thing that will end the world somehow. Okay. I just, to get to my point, I don't see the franchise potential. I could if these lead characters were a little bit more dynamic and interesting and I wanted to follow them because, you know, like I could see them doing a a season in Russia, a season in China. I'm getting into offensive territory here, but you can (laughs) help me out, you know, like, like that there is room for a spy series to grow but there just isn't quite enough that's that interesting about it yeah it's a bad script yeah and and it is and we will talk more about why we feel that way uh to differing degrees but i we both do clearly uh but but my assumption was we were going to get this uh franchise about the different citadels in all these different parts of the world which I, I understand the concept there, at least. I'm like, sure, I, whether or not that's good or interesting, separate question. Just conceptually, yeah, okay, you've got the Citadel team in Australia and the Citadel team in Russia, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but again, the premise of the show that we are watching right now is that in the first, like, 20 minutes, everybody in Citadel is killed except for these three dudes well, Pri- Priyanka Chopra Jonas and two dudes. Uh, and and that, that's all that's left. So maybe it's about making new Citadel, Citadel 2.0, like Ray in the new Star Wars trilogy sequel thing that they, they, they like, okay, I, I, sure, that makes sense. But like, already you have dragged me through so many just Byzantine story turns to get to that setup. And I'm like, I already don't like the idea of Citadel and Manticore. Like, I, just as a viewer, I'm going to say, oh, any show where the basis of the show is, okay, sure, you've heard of spies, but what if there were, like, uber spies? Spies who work for a shadowy organization that is international and, and nobody's ever heard of them. And then, then what if they had an evil rival uber spy organization with a different name? And I'm like, yeah, okay, we did this on Marvel. It was Sword and Shield. It was a whole series on ABC called Agents of Shield. It was fine. But like, 
that only was interesting in a superhero context and didn't totally succeed or set the world on fire with the spy side because it just feels fake and and you need to invest so many details in the how do these international organizations work why has nobody ever heard of them what what is what are they besides instant stakes it's like instant noodles, except steaks. It's like, well, how can we instantly create steaks? Well, let's say they're spies. No, no, that's not enough steaks. Let's say that they are spies for an organization so secretive that if they fail, the world ends. Oh, okay, those are some steaks. What are the stakes of the series? Mm, if they fail this time, the world will end. Cool. Well, we've seen franchises like James Bond make that work again and again and again. You know, like... <laughs> James Bond, think, just, again, is now sort of in the Amazon family with the MGM purchase. Could you imagine if Barbara Broccoli ever approved a James Bond series? Because it would look like Citadel, would. and it would be terrible. I mean, you're right. This is why Barbara Broccoli would not approve that. Like, it works for James Bond as a movie franchise. And also, I would point out, he does work for, like, MI6. Like, he works for a real organization right. that is embellished greatly. But, like, they do root it in a little bit of reality. And this show just immediately out the gate is like, whatever. I do wish in that sense that it went a little bit further into it and that it was just like that little bit campier. Like if you watch like a James Bond movie from like the 70s or 80s where it's like a ridiculous, that it's just ridiculous and everyone is really sexy and like in snowmobiles like that's what i want just like get a little bit sillier take yourself that little bit less seriously so we can just have fun and let this be a popcorn show you know just go an inch closer to john wick but it's in this middle ground right now where it's not quite good enough to be like a daniel craig bond or a jason bourne and it's not quite campy over the top enough to be John Wick. And so I don't know how to enjoy it. I think that is so well said. I, I'm looking at my notes from the first two episodes. And one of the highlights that I, I wrote is the show is at its best when it's being buzzy and light and a little funny. And that's true. And that is why the only redeeming real like element of the um, again, the cast is all solid, but the only redeeming character element that, that lightens the, the show is Stanley Tucci. And they chose Stanley Tucci to be a Stanley Tucci type. Like, that that casting is super deliberate to uh, give that character some lightness, because that character also kind of sucks in some ways and is really um, sort of a, a sociopath in certain ways. And, and if it wasn't a light... Uh, energetic, charismatic person like Stanley Tucci, you would not like him. And and so he is pulling a lot of weight to bring some some airiness, just some lift that you could say is campy. That He is the campiest character on the show, hands down. And it's funniest when he's on screen doing things. Uh, the, the scene that really hit me where I took my note, he takes... Uh, our main man, Mason. He takes Mason to New York to retrieve the Citadel X case, which is like a suitcase, but it has, like, cybersecurity locks, and they're, like, breaking into a safe, and if they break all the locks, they'll have all the codes in the X case, including nuclear codes for reasons, uh, and, and that would be bad. So they take Mason to New York to get the X case, and the second they cut to New York, and they're, like, you know, driving the... the 
incognito van, they start playing like this light boppin' jazz. And the show has been like very self-serious up until that moment. And then they're like, but this is the jazzy thriller heist scene. We're going into a building. Boop de boop boop boop. Stanley Tucci's in a car. Boop de boop boop boop. And it felt really weird and kind of jarring, but it was the first time in that episode where I was like, oh, I'm having fun. Yeah, and it should be fun. Yes. It it needs to be fun. It can be suspenseful and it can be a little dark, but if it's going to work, it's going to need to find out what makes it fun. And I think that this casting is where they got it right. I think Stanley Tucci is fantastic. Um, Leslie Manville plays the the biggest villain we've seen so far in Dahlia Archer, who is with Manticore. She's like a step down from mustache twirling villain here, but she is a good enough actor to pull that off. And she's really good and a little over the top, um, but it works. And I think that also like Priyanka Chopra Jonas and Richard Madden of Game of Thrones fame are are doing solid work here. Yeah, and they do have chemistry with each other. The the will they won't they while is poorly written so far. The the chemistry is real. I I appreciate the scenes they have together. They have a a funny dynamic when they meet again in the second episode and he's trying to help her regain her memories. Uh, That works uh, on an actor-to-actor level. The the writing that they give them is absolutely painful to watch good actors try to make work. Like, I've I've always believed in the, uh, you know, kind of rule that actors can raise the quality of poor writing only a little bit. The the writing can, um, is the baseline in a lot of ways. But to bring it back, boy, to our news story this week, the the writing is the, where everything either a source from or sinks from. But if the writing is bad, you can only gain so much altitude when you try to soar. That is just a fact. I agree. And I'm confused about what the writing is trying to do here, um, which is to say that I don't think that it's successful right now. I think that there's still room for growth, but at the same time for a show this expensive for a show that requires this much attention because it is plot twist plot twist plot twist i think that there may be plenty of viewers who already gave up which would be a big problem for amazon yeah i think that's a a real possibility much in the same way that a lot of viewers gave up on lord of the rings the rings of power uh, when it just didn't get very engaging very quickly. And that's a show where I think the writing is a lot better, but I will fully agree that it does not engage you out the gate. And I, I cannot fault anyone for falling off that show after a couple weeks, especially with the weekly release schedule. There's not a lot of motivation to keep going. And I feel really similarly about Citadel. Had they dropped more than two at the premiere, I would have watched more than two to to bring you dear listeners, a more fully informed opinion, of course. Uh, but they only dropped two, and I have very little motivation to watch the next four. I mean, I might watch it because I think it's kind of easy to watch. And I think that might be the trick for this show, is to just not take it that seriously. And don't be worried if you're like, wait, who has the case right now? Because yeah. none of it matters that much. Just, like, enjoy how pretty everybody is and, like, get little lost in the speed of the thing and just have fun with it 
Yeah, and if it did not cost $300 million, I'd say that's a success in some ways. I, I, I don't dislike fun. I, I love a fun show. And it, that doesn't have to be funny. That can be just light and interesting and kinetic and energetic. Um, but if that costs $300 million, you could have made a fun background show like that for way less. Because there's a whole network that is based on that premise, and it's called Discovery. And they, no, they're not scripted dramas, but you, if, if the benefit of this show is it would be really nice in the background while I'm folding laundry, which is, I, I think, a fair place I would put this show on. Sure, I will watch episode three while I'm folding laundry. But otherwise, I would just put on House Hunters. And House Hunters does not cost $300 million. There are literally like a thousand episodes of House Hunters, and I know they have not spent $300 million producing all of those episodes, let alone six. I'm not a House Hunters gal myself, though I take your point. What I will say is I think right now they're in a, the very unfortunate position at Amazon that Netflix has beat them with this. We're going to talk about The Night Agent in a second, but I also think The Diplomat is sort of in a similar realm, and that is another show with much zippier dialogue. Uh, you know, not without its flaws, but like this lane is being occupied and someone's doing it better and it's really easy to lose momentum in streaming right now so i i would be shocked if citadel finds its way to break through unless they just pour millions and millions of those sweet amazon dollars into some life-saving marketing uh i believe they are going to pour hundreds of millions of dollars into it no matter what uh, it, you know, it's, again, similar to the situation with Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Power, which they've also renewed, despite the fact that we recently talked about the dismal completion rate that has come out about that show. Um, but, okay, that's another season of that show. They're claiming that they're still game to franchise this series. They've only officially renewed season two, but they are, they are still talking the talk about franchising all over the place. And that's where I go... I, I, Unless you completely reboot the idea for the each franchise element, maybe they're maybe they're just barely related to the original in some way, and you could just watch them by themselves, and maybe they're better than the like. Okay, maybe there's a way, but I look at that and I go, okay, another season of this is a risk, but like a calculated one, and often if you're not sure, you'll renew the show because you want to give it a chance. Okay, fine, especially when there's big talent like the Russos involved, you want to keep them happy. Okay, fine. But are you seriously telling me you think you will make any money back making a bunch of these? It doesn't seem likely at this point, but I mean, we don't have the numbers for how this is doing. It doesn't seem to be creating any sort of cultural conversation around itself. No. And then when I think about the Russo brothers and you do talk, obviously they're talented folks. They've made and produced some of the most successful films that we've seen but their recent output i don't know gray man at netflix another one that was incredibly expensive and then also like had plans for a franchise that seemed really half-baked and like maybe is going ahead just so that these streamers save their reputations i might respect these streamers more if they just said oh we were wrong about this and canceled it yeah i i, I personally would 
uh, although we've made our politics on where we stand on the the writers versus producers front <laughs> very clear this episode. I, I just I can't help but look at this and go, you can't. You're saying you don't have the money to pay these writers and directors and actors more, even though they are doing the. Same amount of work, basically, that they were doing before, but you're airing fewer episodes. You're not letting them make money on reruns because Amazon doesn't do reruns. They're not licensing it out to free form to air at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. So, you, you know, the, they, the economic model at the worker level has changed. But then at the executive level, they go, well, yes, we just made the most expensive show ever and it wasn't successful. But what if we made the second most expensive show ever and it also wasn't successful? And then we franchised it. What if we did that? At at what amount of money spend will it suddenly magically break even? A billion? Sure. Why not? That's how it works, right? You just, when you spend enough money, suddenly it works. Oh, wow. We're going to all have to buy a lot more toilet paper on (laughs) Amazon.com. Well, you know, there's another option here as we wrap up on Citadel. They could invent the memory brain chip technology that Stanley Tucci invented in Citadel. And they could put it all in our brains and then they could do what Stanley Tucci did, which is as an actual scene that actually occurs in Citadel. Priyanka Chopra Jonas is fighting for her life with a man who has, like, found her after the Citadel assassination attempt, but now he's a bad dude, too. And so she's clearly gonna uh, kill him. But then, then she hears the chip in her head go, deleting memories in a computer voice so computery, even Alexa's better than that. And so maybe, just maybe, one day, you'll be in the middle of doing dishes, and suddenly you'll hear, you know, uh, 8-bit Alexa in your brain go, Deleting memories. New season of Citadel now available. You know what? I hope that that happens. And instead of giving me a new season of Citadel, it just puts on Stanley Tucci's Searching for Italy on CNN. (laughs) That's the dream. We just need Amazon to buy CNN from Warner Brothers Discovery so that Warner Brothers Discovery has the money to buy NBC Universal from Comcast. And then Comcast can get bored and buy Paramount or something. The circle of life continues. Oh, I only have defeated sounds left. Well, that's a perfect transition uh, to the victory of this episode, which is, of course, a quick rewind review and, let's say, comparison to Citadel of a show we both enjoyed much, much more than we enjoyed Citadel. It's Netflix's The Night Agent. And yeah, we're we're not going to spend a ton of time on The Night Agent. You can hear a lot of our thoughts in the episode of Night Beef in your feed. Uh, But we finished it. Ten episodes of The Night Agent. And I really wanted to touch on it this episode because it it grew on me in a way that Citadel does not appear poised to grow on me. And a huge difference that you called out in our conversations, Diane, is that The Night Agent has a really juicy mystery at its center. And Citadel just doesn't. At least not yet. And they yeah. only have four more episodes, so I'm just calling it Citadel doesn't. <laughs> the Night Agent, I can't believe how fast I watched that show. It's It was like an old school Netflix binge for me, which I don't, haven't done in a while. Same. I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah, and and it you know uh, light light spoilers I suppose through the whole season here, but it, it had lots of twists and turns that felt character based in addition to just being plot based. So there were a lot of moments in the Night Agent where I I looked at a character and went. I don't know if you're a good guy or a bad guy or actually a gray area guy in the middle. And at least so far, Citadel does not have the gray area people at all. They just do not seem to exist. All Citadel has is arch good guys and arch bad guys and a Stanley Tucci type in the middle. But he's a good guy at the end of the day. And and that, that level of just 2D black and white good versus evil in Citadel... It doesn't leave many opportunities for uh, emotionally satisfying twists. There's many plot twists, but a plot twist isn't emotionally satisfying unless it does something to the characters who you care about. Right. And I think in this genre, you need to establish um, some sort of connection for your audiences with your characters quite quickly, which is challenging, I imagine. Right. Like, I'm not saying that it's easy to do and they just totally missed the mark. But I think that uh, one of the ways that night agent does it well is that that sometimes it's a little sappy, you know, they're, they're willing to go to dramatic places. I think a lot about monks, the character who is the um, secret service. I just forgot the word secret Mm -hmm. service, the secret service agent who had uh again, we've given the spoiler alert, who had been uh, shot trying to protect the president. His story definitely hits some really uh, sincere, but a little hokey notes that I did care about him. I was rooting for him. I like absolutely was invested in what would happen to him like right away. Yeah, same. And and I felt... Uh, similarly, though, it took a little more time to grow on me of his, uh, you know, kind of partner, not by choice, but by force on the Secret Service, uh, th- that those characters are not super forward in the first few episodes that we initially reviewed, but they're ones that really grew on me as we got to know them more and then integrated really tightly with our main cast. And all of that was very satisfying because it was driven by these characters and they all had different stakes. They all had different goals. They were not all just on the same team, even if they all were quote-unquote good guys. And that is emotionally and intellectually really interesting, where even if the show is dealing in cliches, it's uh, giving you fresh takes on them, or it's using them in a smart, precise ways instead of just tossing them in for flavor. And so I, I, even though the show really does tread in a lot of cliches, uh, I found them well executed and they built up to a truly bonkers season finale that I loved, even though it was over the top. But it did a great job of building us up to a uh, contained over the top situation where Spoiler alert, our main character has to hold the president at gunpoint to save the president's life, which is just inherently an absurd pitch. And yet it makes logical sense in the moment in the scene. And it's not something that has been done yet this season. But literally, of course, there's only so many times you can pull the hold the president at gunpoint card before it's repetitive. But they hadn't reached that level of just holy shit, until really that finale ramped up really hard. And that, to me, felt earned. 
It was a climax. Whereas on the flip side, I felt like in the first two episodes of Citadel, they just were like, here's another climax. Here's another climax. Climax, climax, climax. I'm like, well, we haven't. Where's the foreplay? Yeah, I did think it was super ridiculous when that happened during Night Agent. But I didn't think that until after I had finished the episode and thought about what had happened. It seems like a show that is so perfectly suited to its release strategy. It just had to be a binge, and it was a binge, so that you don't think. You're just like, more, 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 more. And uh, when the next season comes out, I'm definitely going to jump right in again. Yeah, and it ends on such an excellent note of setup, where now Peter is a night agent, and he is headed out on his first secret assignment, and the president has cleaned out the saboteurs, and now we can begin the real work of a night agent. And I'm like, great, that basically opens up a million possibilities for next season. They can do whatever they want with that. Yeah. And at the same time, it's another thing where you're like, oh, a brand new spy agency is out there like that we've never heard of. But they don't give us too much backstory on the night agents. They're just like, oh, yeah, you don't know about them. They're secret. The president came up with them for a secret thing the president needed investigated secretly, which is the right amount of like BS hand wavy explanation. Uh, and, and also, to be clear, in the season, he's an FBI agent. He's rooted in a real thing. And then he stumbles upon these secret deep cover night agents and becomes one, which is a way better way to ease the audience into this idea of the fictional super spy, as opposed to Citadel, which opens with the fictional super spy agency you've never heard of that we just invented is being wiped out as we speak by the fictional supervillain agency that we just invented that you've never heard of. Do you see the tattoo on his wrist? That's a sign. And I'm like, no, I don't know what any of that means. No. I mean, I'm not sure I particularly care. I... <laughs> fair i i like richard madden and i like priyanka chopra jonas enough that i'm just like well okay you know i i don't know i think that my expectations were low and so i had fun with it and if it's again if i think about it at all i'm gonna be like well none of this really makes a lot of sense that's not how nuclear codes work silly but you know it's still kind of Juicy, silly, can't be fun. And they should just make it a little bit worse and a little more fun. I love that note for the writers of Citadel. And I hope that they negotiate a very juicy contract to get some more of that $300 million in Amazon money for season two. Uh, but until then, you can enjoy The Night Agent, the full season airing on Netflix. And if you watch either of these shows and want to share your thoughts or ask us some questions like, what should I watch during the strike? Email us, podcast at streamageddon.com. But until then, you know what you have to do, strike or no strike. For now, we keep, keep streaming. Writers, strike! Deleting memories. New season of Citadel now available.